Azarine Vanderbilt Alumi's newest novel, Savage Tongues, brings us into the mind of Aresu, a young Iranian-American woman who has returned to Spain to confront the ghosts of her traumatic past. Manipulated into having an affair at 18 years old with her father's 40-year-old step-nephew, Omar, Aresu must now contend with the fallout of that crippling summer. We speak with Azarine about this soul-stirring, complex novel that watches one's inner struggle to find peace and healing while dealing with the intersectionality of race, identity, politics, and the power of patriarchy and privilege. Stay with us on this episode of the Vulgar Geniuses Podcast. Are you currently looking for a bookstore that has a great selection of books? Well, Kizzy's Books and More is that bookstore. Visit www.kizzysbooksandmore.com to purchase your next book for our book club. Use coupon code VULGARGENIUS to receive 10% off the subtotal of your first order. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another podcast episode, and we are so excited about this one. Uh, We have a very special guest with us today. She was our book of the month for the month of August. Yes. And uh, we are so glad to be able to finally connect with her. Um, Our book of the month for August was Savage Tongues, written by Azarine Vandervillette. Olumi. Uh, she is the author of three novels. She is the winner of a Penn Faulkner Award, the John Gardner Award, a Whiting Award, and a National Book Foundation Five Under 35 Award, and has been long listed for the Penn Open Book Award. Her work has been supported by a Fulbright Fellowship, um, a McDowell Fellowship, and a fellowship from Art Omi, and has appeared in the New York Times, Granta, Lit Hub, Guernica, Bomb Magazine, and the Los Angeles Review of Books, among other places. She has lived in Spain, Iran, Italy, and the United Arab Emirates. She currently splits her time between Chicago and South Bend, Indiana, where she directs Notre Dame University's MFA program in creative writing and is a fellow at the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies. Thank you so much for being here. I hope everything, all your credentials that we just read was up to date. (laughs) (laughs) That was plenty more than enough. Thank you so much for hosting me. It's great to be here. Now, before we start talking about your book, I don't know if you remember earlier, um, in an email that we had correspondent and I told you that we were connected in a certain way. I've met you before. Really? Did not realize it until we asked for your, for your book, your bio to be sent to us. And I'm reading, I'm like five thirty under 35. And I'm like, Oh, let me Google like what year. And the year popped up in 2015. I moved to DC I only lived there for like four months, but the very first event that I ever went to was one that I found the day of, like a couple of hours before it even happened, was a live reading of the five under 35 at the Library of Congress, and we were there. Oh, that's such a lovely full circle moment. And I'm just like, this is insane, like, I've seen her read before. 
and now I get to like interview you and this is amazing so I love I that thank you so much this is oh this well, thank you thank you for coming to that event and for yeah asking me to do this podcast it's really definitely great. um a, a very kismet yes. moment for us it's a full <laughs> yeah it's a full circle moment mm-hmm. are you still living in dc no, no. Um, I only lived there for four months. It was too expensive and I couldn't find a job to sustain it. So <laughs> I'm, I live in, uh, in Florida. We live in Orlando, Florida area. So okay. yeah, I came back home, but I just, I'm glad that to be able to like bring DC in that moment back in this interview. So thank you Definitely. so much again for joining us. So we're going to get right on into it, shall we? Yes. Um, so Savage Chunks open up with a with a quote, um, and one of them being from James Baldwin. And mm-hmm. what has reading his work been for you and how has influenced how has it influenced your writing? Yeah, he's a really important um writer and thinker for me in particular because I think his work is, I mean, a lot of people do, right? Very prophetic. And I really love the the way that he's always approaching language as as something that has spiritual potential in the sense that it's the tool that allows us to narrativize the world and reframe our identities within it and also understand our own particular conditions within the world and expose the errors of history and try to address them. And you know, that, that tendency is what I think gives his work such a deep electric charge um, and makes it so timeless. But in particular for this book, Giovanni's Room was really important to me. Um, Just the, I don't know, it's such a different kind of novel for him and it's first person and just intense and erotic and also has this violent energy all throughout. Um, So I was you know, it's been one of my favorite novels and I, I really, it was always present for me when I was writing Savage Tongues. Can you give the people at home a little explanation on your book as well as why you named it Savage Tongues? Yeah, so Savage Tongues uh, follows the narrator Arzu, who's a writer kind of coming into her 40s and she returns to southern Spain and um, takes her best friend Ellie with her. Uh, so Arazu is Iranian American, Ali is uh, Jewish um, Israeli American, and a pro Palestinian uh, scholar and activist. And together they they go back to Marbella, where Arazu had had a pretty difficult, tumultuous affair with a much older man when she was 17. And it's a kind of pilgrimage or return journey in order to excavate that trauma. And again, it's really a journey that happens in and through language, because it's, for me, the plot of the book is really about thinking through what happened and trying to find the the language for capturing both the event itself, but also its long afterlife and the way that it's always shape-shifting. The memory of what happened is always changing as Arzu changes, um, which is kind of the nature of trauma. And and the book is about trying to come to terms with that, um, with the fact that there is 
it's almost impossible to draw a decisive conclusion uh, to kind of pin this experience of sexual and political trauma down. Um, so it's also about sexual trauma in the context of historical and political trauma of the Middle East and the United States, and then the deeper history of Southern Spain, which is also about Jewish and Muslim pain in a lot of ways. Mm. Um, so I think that's it in a nutshell. And, and the novel Savage Tongues, the title, excuse me, is um, really kind of refers to the language of colonialism in the Middle East and uh, North Africa and of colonialism and empire in general of um, kind of othering through through terms like savage or barbaric. Um, so it was kind of playing with that, but at the same time, it's a nod to like the very erotic dimension of the text and the idea that the narrator kind of is speaking in many tongues and many languages and many linguistic registers throughout the book. Um, Arezu, like many of the characters in the novel, all have like an, an origin point, a, a different country that they come from and have lived and, and, and created lives in various places. Was this to bring attention to the intersectionality of nationality and race? Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, it's just my reality, right? It's like the state of things where, where I come from and where I, the space that, that my body kind of occupies, right? It's a space of hybridity. It's, um, you know, this concept of like the East versus the West, which is a total construct, right? It's like a, it's not a real delineation of space, um, but that together with, you know, the, the kind of trend and language of nationalism makes it so that if your body and your race or your ethnicity doesn't, um, can't be essentialized or pinned down to just one geographic space, then you're sort of extra, right? Like you're always not belonging and too much or not enough. Um, and I think it, yeah, I wanted to write a female centered novel where all of the characters are struggling through what it means to be both like from the land of the colonized and the colonizer, right? To, like, what does that do to your psyche when you belong to both those places? And I think it's, it can be very crushing to figure that out. Yeah, I definitely like that part of the of the book because it really makes you think about, you know, who has the right to say that this is is theirs, this land is it belongs to them. You know, oftentimes we hear from people, especially here in the States, where, you know, they are you have white people who are quick to tell other people to go back to where they came from, even though they may have been born here in the United States. <clears throat> That because they are not white, they are not seen as like the original people of this land, which is not not the case, you know, coming from a place of colonialism. Um, so that that definitely stuck stuck out the most for me when when reading the novel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's sort of like all the ways in which like occupying land, you know, through through colonialism or war or displacement of peoples isn't really acknowledged. Like we don't live in a culture of memory in the United States. And a lot of savage tongues is also a response to that. You know, it is a response to 
the consequences, psychic and physical consequences of um, people who suffer suffer the the end result of that denial, right? Um, and and the damage that it does to whole communities and societies. Yeah. And I like it too, because you can feel like the struggle in her, like to be like, she sees both ends, but she has to kind of like, she was forced to kind of like maybe pick and choose at some point, which one she would hold on to. Mm -hmm. And to me, that happens to me a lot because I'm an immigrant from a place that was colonized for 300 years by Spain. And then now I'm here. And then I, you know, I assimilate and I try to like absorb everything. And I can, I felt that through her and I'm like, it's so hard to just identify to one thing because we are not meant to identify to one thing. And I think that's what makes, you know, a person or a woman in this case, like very, very rich, but we, we, we tend to try to like erase all of that. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's sort of, when you're still trying to lay claim to a sense of belonging that doesn't force you to choose between these different parts of yourself. I don't know. It's sort of, I was really interested in what it would look like for me where that struggle is deeply familiar to my own experience, like to put that on the page and to write about it and to privilege that as being the dramatic action of the novel, right? The process of figuring that out. And I think it's a novel that really resonates mostly with other women who have encountered those struggles, right? Um, intersectional women, women of color, queer women, and or, or of any gender, right? But who understand that piece of it, which is, you know, why does this book privilege, you know, the thinking over the action? You know, and what does it mean to not even be able to engage in action because you haven't sorted this piece of yourself out yet, right? Right. So you spoke about the meaning of belongingness in this book, and it's very hard to define. You spoke about how the body knows and vehemently rejects the energy or the land that you stand on if it doesn't know that it's being threatened. Um, as an author, how has th that affected um, the context of your writing on this book? So the feeling of not belonging, I mean, so much of my work, like Call Me Zebra and Savage Tongues is a working through of feelings of displacement and what, what it means to kind of search for home and, and find belonging. And in Savage Tongues, there's this, you know, incredible friendship between Arazu and Ali that becomes a kind of home. Like they both nest in that friendship and it's very radical kind of feminist informed solidarity. And they're both intellectual and politically engaged and, and their conversation with one another is so rich. And then it extends out to the other characters in the novel who are more minor characters, but who are part of this core group of the chosen family. Um, which is like a queer family. It's mostly Middle Eastern American, but not exclusively, right? Um, like Sam is from, from the South in America and um, transitioning and the way that, um, the way that they find belonging with one another as a group of writers in the world who 
are being told constantly that they don't belong or never will belong was really transformative for me as a writer to kind of say, you know, I think a lot about this, this quote um, from Audre Lorde that earlier in book promotion was on the tip of my tongue, but it's really about how kind of radical female friendship is, can be an act of political warfare, right? And I think that's what Savage Tongue was for me. It was like, how can I lean into that? How can I write into that statement and produce a world out of it? So I think my sense of belonging completely changed from the beginning of the novel to the end. And so does the narrators, right? Like she feels like she belongs to the world and she can go and like luxuriate and just be a body and like travel through Granada and take the younger self that was trapped in that apartment and the cruelty of that story out of the apartment by the end of the novel. And it just, that was the arc. There's definitely something special about their their friendship and how her friend was able to recenter her when she needed that push to be like, okay, we need to keep moving forward with your the, the entire intention of you coming and making the, this trip. Um, so there's a section in in the start of your novel where Arezu has who is an who is an author is asked to be on a panel to discuss subjects such as Childish Gambino's video for his song, This Is America. Uh, she mentions how it troubled her to have to comment on something an artist may have taken years to create only to be analyzed for a few seconds. How do you want readers to approach the work and art that you create in, in, in your novels? <laughs> Maybe like a really fine bottle of wine. <laughs> let it age. <laughs> let it age. <laughs> um, favorite. You know, I think there is an expectation now that everything has to be consumed immediately and understood immediately. And we're so addicted to immediate gratification. I am too. You know, we all, I mean, there, it's just, there's no other, you have to resist so much in order to cultivate a space of deep attention. And I think this is not an entertaining novel, right? It's not, a, you know, it, it, you can read it quickly. I think, you know, I've heard people who, who sort of do it in one fell swoop, but I think it's a novel that kind of haunts for a long time and is unpacks itself slowly. And I feel that way sort of, yeah, that, that scene about the childish Gambino video, which has so much of American history folded into it through symbology and timing of image. Right. Um, and so many dramatic particular events that have occurred throughout history uh, and, and the ways that, you know, it just, you know, the narrator is asked to digest it in, I think it's under a minute on the BBC radio show. And I think in that moment as a writer, she feels just the nausea of that, of, of like what it means to, you know, the way that time works where she, you know, you're immersed in this project for years and then it's just gets metabolized in half a second and, and then it's on to the next thing, right? I don't know. I think I think that 
books have a way of finding their audience over time though, you know, so I don't worry about it too much, to be honest, in the grand scheme of things. It, it definitely makes me think of even his video, not only in terms of like that particular moment of being questioned to, you know, analyze this, this music video in, in such a short amount of time, but also what has now been a thing of the video comes out and then the next day we're bombarded with this, these essays of, you know, analyzing this work. And it's like, what if you just give people the time to like, first, like listen to the song or watch the movie and just take it in for themselves before we get into this, you know, deep analyzation of every, every single part. Uh, because I think what happens is a lot of times people don't even get to the point where they've sat with the piece long enough for them to figure out what it means to them and then being told like, this is what it means. This is what yes. it should mean. Yes. And not being able to come to their own conclusion on what it, what it, what it feels for them. Yeah. It feels like a highway robbery to some degree because you don't get to experience it and your experience is constantly being mediated through this zeitgeist, right? Which is very much informed by tastemakers, you know? And some of them I trust wholeheartedly, you know? I think like Roxane Gay wrote beautifully about it, um, but others, you, it is that feeling of being bombarded, absolutely. And the cultural moment that we're in or historical moment that we're in is really resistant to reflection and meditation and I think Savage Tongues also met with some resistance around that because it is a novel of reflection, right? It's not um, a quick paced kind of fast forward moving beast. It's just a quiet sort of deep analysis of let me move these elements around over time. And by doing that enough, I can actually figure out how to hold this whole picture that's the goal right um but yeah I'm, I totally agree what can we do and sometimes it's also harder to do you know the slow burning self-reflection because then we see all the flaws we see all what we need to do and we see our brain <laughs> but because when and like you know we recognize like our heart our brain and where our body is at where our spirit is at, instead of like going through this like whole thing, like zooming in and, you know, paying attention to all these external noises and not realizing what has, what is really happening to, to us. So I think, you know, when reading the novel, I personally had to like stop at some points. Cause I was like, let me, let me think about it. Let me give me about like a couple of days just to kind of like absorb what I read. Cause if not, then I won't even be comfortable to be honest with you talking to you, you know, because mm. it's, it's such a delicate story for me. And like this, the stuff that people go through, if you just kind of like browse through it and read through it really fast, you might miss like the essential part of like what the story is trying to tell you. Mm. Yeah. And I think that goes um, back to what you were saying about the, the ability to sit with something. And if, if you, if you don't have that time, then your entire experience is cerebral. It's just this intellectual experience and 
I love what you're saying about experiencing something with your body and your heart and your mind and then also your soul and your spirit and I think that kind of somatic experience is so critical to healing right and to the work of radical self-care and resistance that you know we need in this moment and and I think, you know, a lot of people also said, well, why return physically to the site of the trauma? And that was always my answer. Well, the return is, has to be somatic. It has to be three-dimensional because the body ha- is, is, a, is a whole organ and, you know, she needs to return in order to remember. And, and you know, it's very clear that the 40-year-old woman is totally cut off from the adolescent young girl that she was until she's physically returned to that apartment and that space so yeah well thank you for reading it with that attention yeah because you you saw and sometimes I go back to a place because I identify with that because I didn't grow up here so when I go back to the Philippines where I grew up there's some some things that I remember that I don't when I'm when I'm here in Florida and you're like oh yeah that happened to me or like you know whether sad bad where I was angry or not it mm-hmm. you, you can't you can't feel that unless you're back in that same moment whether mm-hmm. you're older yeah and that environment with those same sensory details that can trigger the memory right the smells and the sights and the sounds yeah what was the groundwork that was necessary that you needed in order to to write this novel Yeah, you know, I did a lot of research, to be honest, uh, because it's drawing together so many different historical backgrounds, you know, the the history of Sephardic and Islamic Southern Spain, um, and then understanding how the fact that um, both the Jewish community and the the Muslim community um, were completely purged of that space during the Inquisition and the kind of consolidation of Christian Spain or Catholic Spain and um, understanding, you know, Spanish colonialism that coincided in that moment with our American history, which I think is something that I wish we talked about more is that deep connection to the Iberian Peninsula that we have in the American space and imaginary but we forget to connect these dots. And then, you know, what happened in the, you know, in Palestine and Israel today also is completely connected to that historical moment and everything that came after it with just that trend of, of Jewish communities being persecuted in Europe um, and like this constant displacement, right, of Jews and, and Muslims. And there was so much research that I did. And The book isn't heavily historical in Southern Spain, but I wanted to kind of make sure that when I was describing the space and the architecture, there was a kind of awareness of that deep history. And then I did do a significant amount of research around the questions of Palestine and and Israel. And then, I don't know, I just read a lot. I read a lot of, you know, books about friendship like Toni Morrison's Sula I returned to um, and a lot of uh, books that deal with the question of how violence affects our speech and our language and then it was just a matter of letting all those things blend together in my mind and, and forget them during the writing process. 
How long did it take you to, to write your novel? It didn't actually take as very long. I mean, for me, I tend to take years, but this one, maybe two and a half years. So I was doing reading for about a year and a half. And then it took two, two years after that to write it and edit. You didn't forget what you wrote because like what you didn't forget what you read because it, it was in there. Like you said, it, it was good. <laughs> Well, since like you, you can feel that, oh, now we're in a different location. Like you, like you said, like the remnants of like the buildings and how like things were looking, the people around her and stuff. It was there. It was the there. subconscious <laughs> mind. <Yeah. laughs> My conscious well, recall is not as great. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you just wrote it. <laughs> yeah, it just came pouring out. This novel takes on the subjects of sexuality and autonomy as they meet in this space of manipulation creating a world of traumatic experiences in which Arezu lives over and over will you talk to us about how you came about writing this novel in a sort of stream of consciousness where we watch her tackle these defining moments of the character's life sure yeah I mean it's it is about the repetition of trauma I mean the the way that trauma kind of becomes repetitive in the mind and when she returns to the apartment, there are certain scenes with Omar, the older man that she was in a relationship with that kind of keep com coming back. Um, there's, you know, in particular, the scene of the first time that he kissed her and then re-narrativized it almost immediately to say that she had come on to him and her experience of deep, shame and rage and desire all mixed up together in that moment and then her experience of remembering that moment where it's very clear that she was being gaslighted and groomed or even he had sensed her desire for him and figured out a way to exploit it right and turn it around and I think you know that's one of the scenes that she revisits from every angle right as it occurred and then later as she processes it and then how it changed over time and it was kind of like the gateway drug that led to the rest of the relationship because it was she kind of did believe that she was the one who initiated after that and so it muddied her understanding in the novel of every other sexual encounter they had whether or not she had initiated it or he had initiated it, right? So that ambiguity, I really wanted to, to kind of honor that ambiguity and not immediately make, make, this, make the book about he's the villain, she's the victim, right? I mean, those things are true, but they're one piece of a much more complicated story right she doesn't deny that but she doesn't reduce the entire story to that either because they each have their political traumas there's tons of uh, parental neglect in the book um, there's the you know incident of ethnic violence early on in the novel in, in America where she witnesses her brother being beaten and wants to really self-destruct after that. And that also is informing why she goes straight into the mouth of the lion when she meets Omar. So yeah, it's kind of, what does it look like to try to 
look at it with that wide of an aperture, you know, 360 degrees, it's not very simple. Trauma assigned to a place has the power to make one wrestle with how they choose to allow it to dictate their movement through life. And the apartment serves as a major anchor point of this story for um, Eraser and somewhat as a co-protagonist of telling what transpired between she and Omar. Will you like walk us through how you came up with creating this haunted this haunted space in which the damage of um, Arezu occurred and what feelings were you trying to invoke in describing this place? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the the apartment, like as you said, sort of shapeshifts and especially in, at night um, when she can't sleep and is struggling with insomnia and is really fearful and also having these kind of physical talk about somatic experiences, like physical memories of fantasizing about Omar, right? Which also kind of disturb her in some ways. And she sees the walls shifting or there's blood on the walls. Um, and Omar's ghost is really present in the, in the apartment. Like he kind of walks in and out of the room and he's talking to her. And I think that was that speculative energy of it's almost like a surreal energy really allowed me to capture the horror, right? The horror that she can't acknowledge directly that has lived in her body for all this time and the feeling of persecution, right? Like the novel is all about being persecuted in all these different ways, politically, right? Ethnically, sexually, um, and, and like living in a fugue state, right? So that was an aesthetic choice that allowed me to kind of get deeper into the truth of her feelings without having to kind of just simply name them. Yeah. And it's uh, explaining trauma is very, very difficult. Talking about trauma is even more difficult. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. and then like when we were reading in into the book, it's kind of like, you know, you, you kind of really feel like you're kind of trapped in her head almost that you have no, like to me it felt like I had no way out like it's mm -hmm. either you give up on her now or you join the rides to know that she comes out okay because <laughs> because yeah. it's like you know you like when you said the 360 like view of it and then like you live in that apartment it's like it's all that she knows kind of and she and like every time something like a minor thing happened to you you kind of like think about it later like oh could have done this instead would I have gotten like what I wanted mm. but it's it's the same thing in this book but like super magnified because it happened multiple times mm -hmm. so it was it was definitely like the apart like being in an apartment and like seeing all that all that sides kind of helped because it's like now you're you're seeing it her, through her eyes as an older woman but seeing it seeing it through her eyes as she experienced it again when she was younger, if that makes sense, because it is, it is multi-layered. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I really like that image too of just, yeah, you're in the apartment with the 40-year-old writer, narrator, but it's like the younger narr narrator is, it's almost like a hologram, right? Like they're they're there and you're experiencing these parallel stories at the same time. And I, I agree, it is claustrophobic. 
And then hopefully when they finally break out and leave that flood of joy of what it means to be in the world and to be embodied and to have agency and, and to experience pleasure. Like I feel I couldn't get to that level of intensity without the claustrophobia and a conversation I was having with a, a, a fellow writer um, kind of helped me see that because there are moments where, you know, every novel you make choices and then wonder about those choices. And one of the things I wondered about was how long the reader is immersed in that claustrophobic space and should it have been less time. And I still struggle with that, but, but, you know, I did come around to what this friend was saying that while the extreme joy of breaking out into the light, into the sunlight and just leaving uh, would be diminished if if you weren't like in that prolonged state of anxiety with with the narrator. So I don't know. We're all choices. I'm glad that you said that because it, I think it's very it was pivotal to the story for us not to only like read what she had experienced, but for us to also experience it in 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 the, as much to the point that we could experience along with her of reliving all of those um, moments and the turmoil that she was having of, you know, you know, accepting that this was what was done to her and that was not what she was looking for. And like you said of her, like breaking forth to get that, that pleasure. Cause I know it has to be a heavy weight, especially for her partner, knowing that she had gone through all of this and, it kind of being like this thing that you're constantly comparing your lovers to of this being the very first moment to have, you know, basically break you. And now mm-hmm. you're like comparing it to all of these people that you established relationships with and it probably not working out because you're looking for something that you thought was the correct way in order for you to have a relationship. So I know that character was just kind of like, you know, going through it and their partners were going through it and in, in, in a yeah. certain degree. No, absolutely. I think that's what's so affecting about like being initiated, right? And I mean, she's like you said, like the narrator is also aware of that of and I really wanted to write that female experience of being sexually initiated by someone who's violating your trust, your body, your boundaries. And then also making you think that you wanted it and which could be true to an extent right but then it becomes exploited and distorted and yeah absolutely I think you know that that's part of it is is how then that makes it impossible or very difficult right to be like sexually partnered and and I think you know the 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 first boyfriend the chef right they barely even have sex and she's just as happy you know she's unhappy but happy that they don't even have to have sex you know whatever the circumstances (laughs) are and yeah I give the narrator a lot of credit for that awareness of I'm going to stay in this relationship and I also am aware that the lack of sex is is serving me right now Mm -hmm. um and she does have other relationships where where the sexual energy is 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 connected and and exciting. 
but I think you're right. It's about compare that comparison, that framework of always desiring that terrible yeah. thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's and very, you, very odd. <laughs> very odd because like you also walk this like fine line. It really struck me when she was saying like, oh, the age of consent in Spain is this. The age of consent if you're Iranian is this or if you're Middle Eastern, but in, in America is this. And it's kind of just like that struggle. I'm like, what the fuck, man? Like, what do I do? Mm. It's just like, where do where do I go? And like, it's like you have to tear yourself apart and be like, so what now? Like mm-hmm. this happened to me. They made like it made me think that I wanted it, but it's really not. I, I never wanted it. And then like, where do I not even complain? But who do I tell this to? Like, Right. How can I grieve? Like, how do I heal myself? Mm-hmm. It's like, where do I do it? Do I do it in Spain, in America? Or like, do I just identify in some, go in a hole or somewhere? <laughs> yeah. it, it was no, all. It's, it's true. Like the, what frame of reference, which frame of reference do you use morally and legally to navigate which boundary was transgressed and how do you define the transgression? Right. I mean, she's saying child marriage is legal in Iran or was legal right here. Nine. Once you get your period, you're an adult. And then in the age of consent. It's different now in Spain. I think it's 16. But at the time of the narrator's youth was 14. Right. So she was definitely past the age of consent. And then in the United States, it's 18, right? And so what does it mean to be legally an adult? It's so arbitrary, right? And and yet it's used as a measuring stick for defining and acknowledging an experience of abuse, which hardly ever really gets acknowledged. You know, um, like women are, I mean, we know this, right? That rape is still you're making too big of a deal out of nothing kind of attitude and it's a complicated subject it makes you wonder like who chose the age you know like who said 18 or 16 is is the number that's the number to go by because it just really feels like someone who created that rule was because they were probably in that state of wanting to get someone that was younger and manipulate them and get what it was that they wanted to feel um whatever that they were trying to feel um i mean people in positions of power right like lawmakers and usually men <laughs> you, you you said in the, as you said in an album like you know the cis white men and you were like where was the, you, you were looking for you were looking for everybody that should be there but was not there mm. yeah and even with a perfect representational consensus like it's still how do you decide right like how do you decide and it's also about other cultural values and format in terms of gender right like I grew up in a culture where until my mother or grandmother's generation women were truly seen as a burden a financial burden on the family and were not breadwinners are expected to be I mean that's true in most cultures when you go back two generations and so if if they had to be married off well the sooner you have one mouth you know less to feed the better and then so it's driven by 
factors that have nothing to do with sexual maturity or emotional maturity. It's driven by all these other data points, you know, cultural data points. Um, you mentioned in your novel how your main character felt that wherever she may be in the world, that there is a governing body that wants to decide and police her body. And we kind of like touched on it not too long ago about the laws governing adulthood um, were probably made by cis white men. Mm-hmm. Uh, notably that even though the age of consent differs in different places, um, there's still this imbalance and, 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 and it, there's an insulting way of it um, power, money, and influence are the ways these abusers get away with these crimes. And we felt that your novel is a vehicle in stating more conversations, especially in minority communities. Um, Is there anything else that you can add uh, on on top of that? Tell me, like, add on top of which piece of it? Um, In regards to, I guess, the, the power and money when we were writing this this particular question, one of the things that popped up when we were writing it was, I think, was it Bill Cosby had just been released mm. or had just been, you know, told that his time would be up in, in prison. And so when you look at things like that, and then also with R. Kelly being convicted and going, um, who will be going to prison and then seeing what Bill Cosby had to say that he had basically got a, had a bad, uh, a bad trial, got a bad rap from, from Mm -hmm. all of that. Um, what would that say about power and who, who gets off, you know, no matter what it is that the law has stated is incorrect. What does that say about power especially within minority communities where we see this happen all of the time and no one um, is, is being taken in accountability for it. Gosh, I mean, it's, I think, well, money is one indicator of power, right? Class and, and connection can be, very difficult to untangle. I mean, we see it even with the Olympic team, you know, all of the women, um, the the gymnastics team, like who came forward, so many women, and, and they came forward all throughout the process. And yet the, the physician was protected because they were protecting the, the brand, right? Um, And within minority communities, men who acquire positions of power that are connected to a deep network that is powerful can also be shielded, but I think still less often than if you have all of the markers of power, right? Not just you have money and and whiteness and, you know, old money, right? particularly where you're connected to really deep institutional power, you know, because I think that, I think we always occupy multiple dimensions of identity of power and privilege where we might have certain parts of us that like in, in Bill Crosby, where, you know, there's the 
the class dimension of privilege, but there's he's still a black man with a deep connection to to that community and that history. And one thing doesn't it it slightly can change our perception of the other, right? That's kind of how the two work together in tandem, class and race, but but really they're two separate indicators, right? Uh, and occupy different spaces in terms of its relationship to power and privilege. And I think that's always the case, right? Um, and I, I honestly, it's very confusing to me. That's why I'm struggling to answer this question. It's very, very confusing to me what needs to occur for women to be believed and why is it so difficult for people to believe women? And I think it could be because the second that women are truly believed, the entire gendered world order has to shift. Mm -hmm. It's so, so much rests on it that there is an advantage politically, culturally to suppress that, you know, people might believe it. And at the same time, just wish it would go away. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Ooh, that's, that's, that's something right there. Mm -hmm. She said it first, <laughs> <laughs> but I think everybody thinks it, but not everybody is um, brave, brave enough to acknowledge it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Of just how much would have to change everything everything yeah because that would be talking about like you know a lot of people having to relinquish that power that they've been holding on to for forever and a lot of people don't want to do that yep and just like you know very simple like wage minimum wage mm -hmm. <laughs> that has to change and that would already rock everybody's world and the and the wage gap the between female and male you know absolutely yeah, employees. And also then when you layer that if if with race and ethnicity, that wage gap we know gets bigger. Yeah. Right. Um and I think that again, it's those other data points that make put these kinds of pressures on female and minority bodies or trans bodies or queer bodies, right? To um, like, where do you seek protection when the entire structure is designed to make you vulnerable mm -hmm. and to not have a voice? And I, I think it's it's complicated. It's also why the United States doesn't have a culture of memory around indigenous land, mm -hmm. you know, theft and genocide and slavery, because everything would have to shift. Yeah. If you truly stop to acknowledge it, then what do you, first you have to grieve and sit through the shame, which is already more than most people are willing to do. And it's a crushing amount of responsibility. Yeah. So we know you, you talk to a lot of people, you have interviews probably left and right. Are there, um, are there any topics that you wish people would talk, talk more about? about your book yeah I feel like this was a pretty great complete conversation in a lot of ways and I I know that 
every conversation has been thrilling and eye-opening in its own way. Um, I think connecting the political history to the rape is something that was touched on less than I would have hoped. And also the, the violence that happens to the narrator's brother in the American landscape was interesting subject that wasn't brought brought up as often, probably because it comes up early in the novel and then the novel kind of changes and moves on in some ways. But it was interesting to me. I'm like infinitely curious, you know, about the things that that aren't um, spoken about as much. So I, I'd say those were probably the two things. So we've come to the point of our conversation that I think is probably one of my favorites because I'm always curious in, into the making of the author. And that is, we want to know your top five favorite books of all time. Now we know it's really hard to make this choice. <laughs> it was a lot, so I'm sure. Um, and today you might give us a five and then tomorrow morning you're like, wait a minute, why didn't I not think of this one, but we'll take what you, what you can give us. And it can be either your, your top five favorite of all time or your top five that you're currently excited about. Gosh, you know, it's like the question that always makes me draw a blank, but definitely James Baldwin's Another Country, way up there. Virginia Woolf's The Waves. I think Toni Morrison's, it's hard to choose between Beloved and Sula, but I'll go with Sula. Hmm. Um, this writer, uh, Marseille Rodoreda, who's a Catalan uh, writer, uh, her, her book in translation is called A Time of the, a Time of the Doves. Really interesting. Gosh, it is impossible to to really choose. There's so many books that I love. What would be a fifth one? Probably Roberta Bolaño's A Distant Star. Mm. That's five. <laughs> right there, folks. Those are the, the top five. <laughs> it seemed like very seamlessly you just pulled them out of a hat and it's like, these are my five books. Other people like roam around and cry about it sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a very hard question. It is. I think the fact that I've been doing book tour helps because it's it's a question that has come up or, you know, people are curious about. Um, but yeah, like you said, tomorrow morning, it might be a different, although another country is just, it's always there. Wow. <laughs> <Love it. laughs> Number one is the solid, is the solid rock. The solid one. <laughs> Do you have anything coming up that you want people to know that you're working on or, you know, that you're currently doing? I have, a, you know, it's short notice, but I have a talk on Thursday at the Iranian Diaspora Center in San Francisco State University that will be virtual. And yeah, I mean, I'm coming to the end of, of book tour more or less I think I have a couple more events but things are slowing down and I'm grateful for that too how has that time been for you the whole the whole book tour it's been really great I mean I've had so many conversations with people and that's been I think incredible to see the way that people like the way that the book has 
spoken to people is the most interesting part for me is really listening to the questions and understanding what that reader's experience was like. It's a huge gift after spending time alone writing the book. Mm. Azarine, thank you so much uh, for this time that you've given us. Um, also, she, uh, she is the founder of Literatures of Inhalation, Exile, and Resistance. So we found that in your website. And I know you guys yeah. have some, is it like a series, symposium type stuff? Oh, that- yes. I could plug in that for sure. So I run this lecture series that's a webinar um, that is focused on writers of color and minoritized writers who's who are in their literature um, or visual art responding to state-sanctioned violence and um, up next we have Dwayne Betts who just won a MacArthur congratulations to Dwayne Betts and that'll be on November 5th And people can register for all our events. It's free. It's virtual because we host tons of Middle Eastern writers. We had a writer from Gaza last time. And it's just wonderful to see international community and and to keep that access open and equitable. Um, And people don't have to have an institutional affiliation to register, even though when you register, it asks for one. You can just say not applicable. So yeah, listserv is on our website and... All our events are there. Well, we'll definitely be checking out that and and promoting it for you as well. Because thank you. Coming upon that detail of you is one of the most like delightful things to to find out what you've created. And so huge yeah. labor of love. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's it's a lot of hard work. A lot of I I feel like a lot of like a lot of heart goes into it. Just yeah, I mean it's incredible that you guys read books together and have these conversations. I feel like. It's what keeps us powering on. Yes. Thank you so for your time and for inviting me and reading the book with so much care. And thank you for, for coming and talking to us about, about your book and yourself and everything else in between. We really appreciate it. Come back anytime. We'll take care. All right, you too. Thank you and have a good night. Good night. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed our show. Follow us on Instagram at Vulgar Geniuses Book Club. Our theme song was produced by Sean Kantrowitz. Follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Sean Dammit. That's spelled S-E-A-N-D-A-M-M-I-T. Make sure to like, comment, and subscribe to our podcast on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. See you next time. Deuces.